0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about music here on this show because everybody loves music, and one of our favorite recurring features on this show is the story of a song, and we've done some really good ones, folks. Riders on the Storm, Gimme Shelter, you're going to hear about how some vocal tracks got recorded on that song, and you will realize some things that you never really knew before about why that song's great. House of the Rising Sun, my goodness, Jesse did just a great job on that one. Another brick in the wall, you hear how that song got made, and one change in the studio that made that song the hit song, it became all of it on ouramericannetwork.org. You can go and click the Topics button, and there it'll be, Story of a Song. And by the way, sign up for our newsletter while you're on ouramericannetwork.org. We'll send you our five best stories once a week, every week. And now it's time for our story of the song for today, and our own Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery, who is a freak I've never seen somebody know so much about, so much about music than a young man named Monty. And here he is with the story of R.E.M.'s song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth?
1: far as most people know, or are concerned, R.E.M.'s 1994 hit song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, off their album Monster, is just another alternative rock throwback of a time gone by. But for some of the more inquisitive-minded or Wikipedia-obsessed R.E.M. fans, this question might have popped into your head at some point in time. Who exactly is Kenneth? Stateline, Dharan, Saudi Arabia. A car-truck bomb has exploded in an area
2: where 2,000 U.S. servicemen and their families live. 160 casualties among them an estimated at least two to four dead.
3: This is the
2: CBS Evening
3: News with Dan Rather reporting from CBS News
4: headquarters in New York.
1: As it turns out, Former CBS News anchor Dan Rather has a lot to do with the song. It was a dark and mild night in New York City, October 6, 1986, that Dan Rather found himself walking along 88th Street in the Upper East Side. Rather had been visiting David Buxbaum, his friend and vice president of news at CBS for dinner. And the last thing on his mind at 10.42 was the possibility of getting beaten up. But at 10.43, that became the first thing on his mind. As a man dressed up in a black suit, white shirt, and black tie, well dressed according to Rather, asked him a particular question. Right after the question was posed, an unsuspecting Rather was reported to have said, you've got the wrong guy. But this didn't phase the man at all, and Dan Rather was promptly punched underneath the jaw. Rather, in pain, was then chased to an apartment complex, where the man continued to beat and kick him and continued to ask the famous question What's the frequency, Kenneth? The 100%, 100%. Oh.
5: Fast forward to 1993
1: world-famous rock band R.E.M. is in the process of writing material for their upcoming album Monster, a release that would find Dan Rather's unfortunate assault as the centerpiece for the lead single. Here's Michael Stipe and Dan Rather discussing the famous song. Let's talk about what's the frequency, Kenneth. (laughs) (laughs)
6: Let's talk about that, Dan.
0: (laughs) And on the record, from the album Monster, obviously something that resonates with me and I remember the time very well, but let's go back to that time. What, you were doing the album, Monster. When and how did the idea of doing something on what's the frequency Kenneth, come to you? Or whom did it come to?
6: It came to me. Uh, I was writing a song about a, a, a generational gap and a character who's desperately trying to understand a, a younger generation's perspective and failing miserably at it. And the the phrase, Kenneth, what's the frequency, or what's the frequency, Kenneth, is, I, I think I turned it. Um, represents inscrutability. It's, it's, it's the big question. <laughs> no one knew what it meant. It, it represented uh,
1: trying and trying and trying, but not arriving at any answer. And the NYPD, despite trying and trying and trying, also came up with no answer as to who beat up Dan Rather until 1997 when William Tagger was arrested for the death of an NBC stagehand. Tager believed that TV news was beaming unknown frequencies into his mind, causing his life to fall apart, which was the reason why he attacked one of TV's most well-known news reporters, running into him on the street out of sheer coincidence. Dan rather maintains his sense of humor about his assault, though.
6: And you were such a great sport about the whole thing. I remember you coming to soundcheck and us performing the song together.
7: <laughs> well, that's that is still one of my more embarrassing moments. Because you know I can't sing at all. We figured that out in the moment.
1: <laughs> it, it didn't take long. You did great. I <laughs> enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. And if you've ever wanted to hear Dan Rather sing, here's a sound check he did with REM.
0: What a story. Uh, you know, Dan Rather's lucky. This guy, a little further down the road, would have planned to kill Dan Rather. Uh, what a nut, and what a story, and what a way to turn something crazy into something beautiful. Great song, great record, great artists that R.A.M. were and are, and a great work by Monty, our Hillsdale intern, and Hillsdale College is the proud sponsor of all of our This Days and Histories. And we're lucky to have him and all the folks from Hillsdale and their support. And by the way, if you love what we do, sign up for our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll send you, if you sign up, five of our best stories each week. They'll be transcribed. they will be in audio form every week. We promise you our five best. This is Lee Habib, the story of a song. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Here on Our American Story. American stories and we tell stories of every kind here and we love hitting the road and visiting cities across America. We're going to do reports from cities big and small regularly here. And by the way, if you've got a story about your city and your town, well, drop us a note at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll get there if the story is interesting enough. And my goodness, I'm sure that you've got an interesting story about almost every place you live in this great country. Well, today is the story of a city called New Orleans, and it has over 10 million visitors per year with a local population hovering around 400,000. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, hit the
6: streets. What can be said about a city that people can't stop talking about? The birthplace of jazz. Louis Armstrong Territory, Satchmo.
3: I was born, uh, you know, in 1900. And uh, in James Alley, they call it. That's the uh, back of town. That's the
6: the rear of New Orleans. People of every race, color, religion, gender, age, language, and class call it home. Truly, the great American melting pot. Every kind of food. Every kind of booze. Music pours into the air from every street corner. The sweet morning breeze collides with the sweltering humidity of the mid-morning sun, followed by a long, slow burn that stays lit well into the early morning hours and beyond sunrise again. The Big Easy. The Crescent City. The House of the Rising Sun. We're staying at the Maison Dupuis Hotel in the French Quarter just two blocks from Bourbon Street. With its wide open courtyard and pool, full bar and cafe, Old World Charm comes with rooms that start around 130 bucks a night. With a little imagination, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're somewhere in Europe. If you're into that sort of thing. There's a vintage 1969 Montgomery g elevator in the lobby here for no extra charge. You don't want to get stuck in this aging beauty though. About half the size of a normal elevator, you feel the box knocking around the walls as it takes you to your floor. And it's slower than one might think of a modern elevator, heavy with marble tile and worn brass. A long weekend here won't break the bank, and there's always something to look at. Galatoise dates back to 1905 with a business casual dress code for lunch, no shorts or t-shirts allowed.
7: Most of the waiters are longtime employees who are local to South Louisiana. My name is John Fontenot, I'm from the Bayou. I've been here at Galatois since 1967 and I left a couple of times to go back to college to try to finish college but I'm still here because I like people and whether they like me or not I still like them you know. I tell them a few jokes here and there, things like that. But I finished school, but I still rather be a waiter because I, I like to talk to people, you know? I try to talk to myself, but it don't work. You gotta, and I spoke French before English, born and raised here, so that's why I got an accent. I try, you know, sometimes you get tired of talking, the accent comes worse, it gets worse.
6: John's been working here as a waiter for over 50 years. And you can hear how much he enjoys it in his voice.
7: Galatois is, uh, to describe Galatoire, it's like an oasis. I call it an oasis. They gotta come here, they gotta eat, especially Friday. They come every day, but Friday's like they, they, they fight to get in here. And I don't know, you know, other than that, it's, they all meet each other. It's a local restaurant. So they all meet each other and they all have a good time. It's like, uh, like going to kind of like uh um, like going to church you meet all your friends and it's uh, i guess that's about the best description I, I got and they they don't drink too much they drink a little bit they eat good the food is great and uh it's always consistent we have fresh if we don't have it it's because it's not fresh like shell crab still playing the piano that's the only time we eat it we a little crab you know, on top and a little touch of mania you know things like that what makes galatoire so good It's not just the food, but it's the local people. Man, we got a lot of local people come here. If it wouldn't be for local people, we'd have to close up. The local people love us. And now we like the tourists too and all that, but the local people like, I very seldom wait on tourists. I'm mostly uh, local people I wait on. Some of them I don't recognize because they they grow up so quick, but they know me, you know, because I wait on their dad, their grandpa, grandma, kind of makes you feel good. I feel like I'm related to them, you know? It's hard to describe that, but once you get a relation with them, they come in, I know what just about what they're gonna eat. Now, that's pretty good, Will you remember what they're gonna eat. Like shrimp remoulade or crab meat maison, or better yet, half and half, a little shrimp and a little crab meat. You know, that kind of for appetizer. And I bring them a little bread. And then for the main course, red fish, I tell them all the time red fish, lemon fish, drum, papano, that's all fish, saute with crab meat. Papano you usually grill it. But Papano's is uh, a special fish. It's a little different from the others because the others are more mild fish. But uh, you got to remember these things when you... It's like wine. I try to remember the wine. and It's a little harder. But for the fish and all that, I remember all of that, you know?
6: After working at Galatois for so long, John's seen a lot of waiters come and go over the years. Either you got it or you ain't.
7: The waiters at Galatois... They have to be pretty good to be a waiter, Galatoire. I think, I would think so, because the way that the Galatoirs are kind of like uh, you gotta you gotta be attentive to the customers. You just can't give them a hamburger and say, well, we don't serve hamburger here. But I'm just saying, give them a hamburger, eat, that's it. No, no, over here you gotta keep keep track of them, keep that table kind of you know keep it as clean as you can as you go. Ice and water. They want wine. They might not want wine now. 10 minutes, five minutes later after you walk, yeah, send them over here, I need a bottle of wine. You know, that kind of, you gotta be attentive to them all the time. I, I like to explain it to them better yet. You know, like, crab meat and in a cream cheese sauce, you know. Stuffed egg black, like crab shrimp baked, you know. Kinda like, kinda, you just, don't, I, I like what I do, it's my job, and I make it like, I'm glad you came. Cause if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't be, I'd be out of work, you know. So I'm always thanking them for coming, you know that kind of thing. And before I came here, they didn't have ice machine. We had to use the ice. We used to have 900 pounds of ice delivered to us every day. Louisiana is
6: the only place in the United States, other than a small strip of our border with Canada, where French or French Creole is spoken as a first language, 6 to 10 percent of the population. They speak French here because in 1682, a French explorer claimed Louisiana for France. Eighty years later, France gave Louisiana to Spain. For 40 years, New Orleans was a Spanish city. It burned to the ground twice and was rebuilt before it was ever considered American. In 1803, France takes back possession sells it to the United States just 20 days later in the Louisiana Purchase.
2: Three years after the 19th century began, the Louisiana Delta, a large swampy wilderness abounding in game, was purchased by the United States from France. At first, the Americans sought only the Delta area to allow a free exit from the Mississippi Valley through the Port of New Orleans. But the purchase was enlarged to include a vast fertile land reaching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Canadian border as far west as the Rockies, over a million square miles for the price of only $15 million, about four cents an acre. It was the foresight of men like the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who saw in this great territory the future of America.
3: And on the shores of these great lakes, inland commerce from the North Atlantic to the Gulf.
6: Less than a decade later, in the War of 1812, the United States took on the greatest naval power in the world at the time, Great Britain, in a conflict that would have an immense impact on our young country's future. The final battle of that war was fought here, in the Battle of New Orleans. Then Colonel Andrew Jackson led a coalition of pirates, free blacks, and Tennessee volunteers to defeat a British force outside the city.
2: In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi took a little bacon and we took a little beans Fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a coming would not as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico well, we looked down the river and we seen the British come, and it must have been a hundred of 'em beating on the drum. Stepped so high and they began to sing. We stood beside the cotton bales and didn't say a thing. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming But there wouldn't as many as it was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. When we
6: returned, the story of New Orleans continued. Yeah, on our American stories.
2: It couldn't go. They run so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we fired our cannon till the barrel melted down Then we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round Filled his head with cannonball and powdered his behind And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming Wasn't as many as it was a while ago Fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles, and they fired through the paces through the rabbit, couldn't go. Oh.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we return to the city of New Orleans, and a side note here, it's my favorite American city. My wife and I go there regularly. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, not very far drive away. Uh, Moreover, we were married there. That's how much we love the city. Got married there and loved to go and eat there and listen to music there. Now let's return to Jesse and more of the story.
6: The population of the city doubled in the 1830s with an influx of settlers. By 1840, New Orleans had become the wealthiest and third most populous city in the nation at 102,000. Early in the Civil War, New Orleans was captured by the Union without a battle in the city itself, was spared the destruction suffered by many other cities in the South. There are a lot of drunk people here in New Orleans. Just be cool, man. There's one place in town that doesn't serve any drinks, or food for that matter. It's called Preservation Hall. Not only are food and drinks prohibited, but there's no bathrooms anywhere. If you're planning on seeing the show after pregame drinks, be ready to hold it in for at least an hour, standing in line if you want good seats, and another hour for the show itself. Oh, and I forgot to mention, there's no air conditioning either. If you know how hot and humid it gets in New Orleans during the summer, prepare yourself. This place gets loud, and it gets hot, and it gets packed in tight. Shows are at 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 p.m. General admission is cash-only, $20 seven nights a week. Unless you want to pay extra for big-shot seating, that gives you the best spot in the house and allows you to skip the line for $35 to $50. Bucks. This place was established in 1961 to preserve, perpetuate, and protect traditional New Orleans jazz. This small, intimate room feels like the main vessel from God himself to the south. The band starts playing. Operating as a music venue, a touring band, a record label, and a nonprofit organization, Preservation Hall continues their mission as a cornerstone of New Orleans music and culture.
1: I'm Ben Jaffe, and I'm uh, the bass player, the upright bass, and the tuba player with the band.
6: Ben Jaffe also runs this place. His parents were founding members.
1: I look to, to the early jazz pioneers that are like responsible for this music. People like you know Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and Freddie Keppard. These musicians that uh, were creating something new at that time, a part of the tradition that we're a part of and come come out of, and the responsibility we have to keep that tradition alive and relevant and new while still having you know a foot in the past and you know kind of looking towards the, the future.
6: Since its opening day in 1961, millions of people have walked through this hall, including presidents, prime ministers, movie stars, and rock idols. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen have filmed scenes at the hall. Tom Waits called it sacred, hallowed ground. Louis Armstrong himself said of Preservation Hall, that's where you'll find all the greats. We so often hear him sing. Let's listen to the master from New Orleans speak. I played in a symphony orchestra
3: in 1925 for Silent Pictures, and we played everything you hear these big orchestras playing right down in, in the Vendome Theater in Chicago. And we changed programs twice a week with movies, and we play an overture. Then we go into the jazz quite nicely, that's how I got in there, but still, you know, look at the experience I had by being there waiting for myself to come in with the jazz chorus or whatever it is, but we play an overture first. And there's the experience, right? William Tell was nothing after I was there two weeks. Understand? Because I was interested in my horn and everything went with it. and uh, It wasn't much different, the, the visions of the, the measures and all that that we did in the funeral marches. Three, four time, four, four times, twelve, eight time, the same. So everything's been done before, nothing new. But I listen to the best of music, which is just plain music. The worst thing the public, and especially musicians, they're ruining music. Musicians trying to play for them. So they can say, man, you out of this world. And they ain't even paid for to get in the damn concert at the hall. If you'd have gone and please them people that appreciate like wonderful world, well, that's just a tame uh, tune to your hip, if you're called a hip musician. And they ask them to play it, you know, you have the tone to play. Still in all, if you don't blow your brains out, that's what ruined a lot of musicians through the years. And ruined music. Trying to please the other musician that he even can't play nothing himself. You bet your life. I like lost my lip trying to please these cats standing there with their arms full. Mm-hmm. What? What can you play? There's 10 billion trumpet players. Name one that you think's a creator. And if you name one, I'll kiss your pocketbook.
6: <laughs> jazz and New Orleans go hand in hand. People love it down here. One infamous citizen of this city like jazz a little too much, he's known as the Axeman of New Orleans. As the killer's name implies, the victims were usually attacked with an axe. He killed six and injured twelve, but the Axeman was never caught or identified. His crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. On March 13th of 1919, a letter from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. Now, to be exact,
7: at 12.15, earthly time of course, on Tuesday next, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing, at the time I have mentioned. (laughs) If everyone has a jazz band going, well so much the better, for your people. One thing is certain and that is that some of y'all people who do not jazz it up on tuesday night if there be any will get
6: my axe that night all of new orleans dance halls were filled to capacity with jazz parties at hundreds of houses around town the horror then came to an abrupt end and no one would ever learn the identity of the axe the story of New Orleans continues when we return here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org.
3: If you ever get down to this Way, you might steer clear on St. Joseph's Day.
0: Sound the dead get up and start walking around. You might not believe me, but I'll tell you it's true. And you would, too, if it happens to you. I spent the night on the graveyard there. And what I saw gave me a terrible scare. Rattling balls. is Our American Stories, and we conclude with our adventure into the deep
6: streets of New Orleans with our producer, Jesse. The last 48 hours in this town have been a whimsical blur, mostly thanks to the frozen margaritas on every street corner and staying up to 4 a.m. listening to world-class jazz. One of the more popular bars in the French Quarter is Pat O'Brien's. During Prohibition, it was known as Mr. O'Brien's, and the password, Storm's Bruin, was required to gain entrance to the establishment. It began operation as a legal liquor joint in December of 1933, and it's where the cocktail known as the Hurricane was born. Charlie Bateman is VP of Operations at O'Brien's.
8: Well, the Hurricane was created mainly because there was a shortage of liquor, you know, uh, And uh, for like every case of scotch you you had to buy, you had to buy like five cases of rum. And not a lot of people drank rum back in those days. So one story short, they they were stockpiling the rum, had no idea what to do with it. So one day, uh, uh, George Oster sat down with uh, Charlie Cantrell, and they started playing around with a different drink. Uh, A liquor salesman had to bring in some what they call red passion fruit mix. And they created this drink, it was a red drink with red passion fruit mix. The next thing was, is, you know, how do we going to promote it? So at first they put it in a small glass, that didn't work out too well. So they had these hurricane lamps that they used to put the, the candles in. And so they put the drink in there, it was a big tall red drink, and they, they gave it, they passed it out to a lot of locals that came in here, and it just snowballed from there. And whenever the service menus walk in, they all wanted to know what the drink was. And it's one of the biggest uh, souvenir items of New Orleans. So uh, yeah, over the years we've sold millions and millions of those.
6: While there's more to New Orleans than drinking, it'd be a shame not to introduce you to Chris McMillan. He's a famous New Orleans bartender and co-founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail. This line of work runs in his family. He's a fourth generation bartender, and in 2016, he opened Revel in Midtown.
9: Uh, I want to say just a couple of things about uh, the preparation of the drink before I get started. Uh, One is the uh, traditional silver cup, uh, metal acts as a conductor glass acts as an insulator so the cooling of a drink is the physics of heat transfer when you have the metal it conducts the heat in the spirit through the metal to the exterior of the glass and causes condensation and actually creates a frost on the exterior of the cup making it colder uh, and therefore the drink more pleasant to more pleasant to drink the second thing is the actual use of mint and you'll see this with the mojito Uh, also. Bartenders believe that by, uh, we've all seen the commercial of the uh, bartender in the room uh, muddling the men in the mojito with the uh, the band playing and the the party going on to the beat of the rhythm of his muddling. And bartenders believe that by showing you uh, their muddling technique, it shows their skill as a bartender. But uh, one of the things that you have to learn about men is that it's very delicate. And it doesn't require that you pulverize it. You can take one leaf and just barely rub it and release the beautiful fragrance and essence of the oil in the leaf. However, if you take an equal leaf and crush it and pulverize it, it will release bitter uh, flavors, uh, which you often see in the mojito. This is chlorophyll in the plant, and you release that vegetal matter, so you're not trying to
6: crush the mint. Our bartender here then recites a routine of prose as he crafts our cocktail. It's called Ode to the Mint Julep, and it was written by Joshua Sol Smith.
9: Then comes the zenith of man's pleasure. Then comes the julep, the mint julep. Who has not tasted one, has lived in vain. The honey of Hymatis brought no such solace to the soul. The nectar of the gods is tamed beside it. It is the very dream of drinks, the vision of sweet quaffings. The bourbon and the mint are lovers in the same land they live and on the same food that they fostered. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows to the level lands through which the small streams meander. By the brookside, the mint grows. As little wavelets pass, they glide up to kiss the feet of the growing mint. It bends to salute them. Gracious and kind it is, living only for the sake of others. The crushing of it, only makes its sweetness more apparent. Like a woman's heart, it gives its sweetest aroma when bruised. Among the first to greet the spring, it comes beside the curling brook that makes music in the pastures. It lives and thrives when the bluegrass begins to shoot its gentle sprays towards the sun. It comes, and its sweetest soul drinks of the crystal brook. It is virgin then, but soon it must be married to old bourbon his great heart, his warmth of temperament, and that affinity which no one understands demand the wedding. How shall it be? Take from the cold spring some water, pure as angels are, and mix it with sugar till it seems like oil. Then take a glass and crush your mint within it with a spoon. Crush it around the borders of the glass and leave no place untouched. Then throw the mint away. It is a sacrifice. Fill with cracked ice the glass, Pour in the quantity of bourbon which you want. It trickles slowly through the ice. Let it have time to cool. Then pour your sugared water over it. No spoon is needed, no stirring allowed. Then place sprigs of mint around the brim so that the one who drinks may find a taste and an odor at one draft. When it is made, sip it slowly. August suns are shining, the breath of the south upon you. It is fragrant, cold, and sweet. It is seductive. No maiden's kiss is tender or more refreshing. No maiden's touch could be more passionate. Sip it and dream. You cannot dream amiss. Sip it in dream. It is a dream itself. No other land gives such sweet solace for your cares. No other liquor Soos you so in melancholy days Sipping and say There is no solace for the soul No tonic for the body Like
6: old bourbon whiskey Needless to say I had my fill of bourbon that night But somehow I managed to avoid the dreaded hangover A walk in the early morning sunlight Around Jackson Square Is a great way to get some pictures Of the local architecture Without getting a bunch of tourists in the shot And it's a great chance at some fresh air It's actually the best time to walk the French Quarter in my opinion. Bourbon Street is quiet and the only other people out are going to work. Beware, once you come here, part of you will never leave. As beautiful as she is haunting, and just as salty as she is sweet, this town has an undeniable magnetism that will draw you near forever. Some of it's the history, Some the legend, the food, the drinks, that party atmosphere that doesn't quite sound like anywhere else. There's also an indiscernible quality about New Orleans that's perhaps best left to the poets. This is a love poem for New Orleans, written and performed by Nina Erickson.
10: She's
5: a floozy you fall in love with against your better judgment. She's fast and unfaithful, But you just don't care because she's so beautiful and so charming. And when you're in her arms, she talks you into doing things you'd never do anywhere else. You know she's not true and she doesn't love you. But her voice is jazz and her blood is zydeco. And when she sings the blues, you give in and hand over to her anything she asks. Her heart's in the quarter, though she gives no quarter herself. She's ruthless and she'll take you for everything you're worth. In fact, you think nothing of it when she tells you to give her $10 for that $3 drink she just served you in a plastic cup so you can take it with you out into her streets where you trip over the cobblestones as you make your way back to the haunted room you've rented for the week. It must be the voodoo that leaves you so spellbound that you stand transfixed in the square, in front of the cathedral, and under the stony gaze of Jackson, wishing you could stay in her wicked arms just a few more nights. No, she's no good for you, but she stole your heart while she emptied your pockets, so you make up your mind, it's no big deal. You'll let the Big Easy keep your money and your good sense and call it a fair trade. Because while your wallet is empty and your pride is laid low, your soul is as full as a steaming cup of coffee served up at 4 a.m. at the Café du Monde where you sit trying to sober up just enough to remember how to find your way back to that rented room with its ghost of a beautiful dark-skinned girl that gave you such a fright your first few nights in town until you got used to her leaning over your bed. tuck you in tight, each time you lay down.
6: For Our American Stories in New Orleans, I'm Jesse Edwards.
4: Is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you've come to know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, from history to the arts, sports, and your stories, too. That's the hour in Our American Stories. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter while you're there and we'll hit you with our best four or five stories every week. And you're listening to the theme song to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the highly successful television sitcom that ran from 1990 to 1996 and is on perpetually on cable. People always say sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you make it to the top. Things were no different for rapper-turned-actor Will Smith and he almost missed his opportunity to be a part of Of a groundbreaking show the story we're about to listen to is all about how will smith's life got flipped and turned upside down we'd like to take a minute just sit right there here's will smith to tell us how he became the star of the hit tv show called the fresh prince of bel-air
4: before i was getting in trouble with uncle phil i was in trouble with uncle sam Me and Jeff had come out with our smash hit, Parents Just Don't Understand. We made a bunch of money. We won a Grammy album, was triple platinum. I had motorcycles and cars. I called the Gucci store in Atlanta, and I was like, hey, will y'all close it down if I bring my friends? And I'm smiling, but that's stupid. We released our next album, and it was like a flop. It was a tragedy. It went like, double plastic I had spent most of my money like all of, I spent all my money and I didn't forget but I didn't pay the IRS in my mind, I mean I wasn't like trying to avoid paying taxes, I was just like oh damn, they need their money the IRS took all all that stuff so I was like broke, broke, broke being famous and broke is a s***y combination. Because you're still famous and people recognize you, but they recognize you while you're sitting next to them on the bus. And the stuff they ask you to sign on a bus, you know, like, oh, can you sign my baby? That's a sharpie. I, I probably shouldn't just write on the baby with that. Oh, you too big to sign my baby. Well, no, I mean, you know, so I signed it. So I was like laying around and my girlfriend was like,
5: dude, we're not doing this. Like, you're not just going to be laying around this house all day. You're going to go do something.
4: And I was like, what? What am I supposed to do?
5: Go where people is is doing it.
4: W- where are people doing it?
5: Go to the Arsenio Hall show.
4: Just go stand around at the Arsenio Hall show. Yes. That's stupid. <laughs> Pick it up! So I went to the Arsenio Hall show and I met a dude named Benny Medina. Benny Medina is the real life Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, except he actually went from Watts to Beverly Hills. Same basic concept, way shorter distance. I meet Benny and he pitches me the idea for this show and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not an actor. I'm like, cool. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to meet Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is producing with me. So I find myself at Quincy's. And there's actors and artists and celebrities and politicians, it's like everybody at Quincy's house. It's like the Wiz without the costume. So Benny walks me in and introduced me to Quincy. He's like, hey Q, what's up, man? He's like, hey man, you know I saw your music videos. I love, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Tell me your rap name again. So they call me the Fresh Prince. <laughs> All right, good. That's what we're gonna call the show. And he handed me a screenplay for a failed Morris Day pilot. Like, I don't have the time. So I need you to do this. I need you to go ahead, take a few minutes, take 10 minutes, study the script. And I'm going to clear all the stuff out the living room. And we're going to have everybody sit down in the living room. We're going to do an audition. He had movers that could reset his furniture. I was like, this dude is real. So he goes out and tells everybody, come on, come on, come on. And I was like, hey, Q, hold up, man. Hold up. I'm not ready to do no audition. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. Uh, well what you need tell me what you need just set the meeting for a week and I could do it he said yeah yeah you know Brandon Tartikoff the head of NBC is out there I'll get him to schedule for next week and then you know what's gonna happen something gonna come up and then he's gonna have to reschedule oh yeah yeah so three three weeks from now we can do it three weeks from now I said yeah 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 three weeks from now be good or you could take ten minutes right now and you can change your life forever I was like Yes, give me ten minutes. I said yes, and I let it rip. And I got to the end, and everybody is clapping. Quincy looks at Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC. Did you like it? And Brandon said, Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Quincy says, No, did you like it? And he's like, Yeah, I liked it. He's like, Good. You're his lawyer. Draw me up something right now. Damn, Quincy ordering other people lawyers around. Like, <laughs> that's his lawyer. Quincy, leave that man alone. And Quincy turned to me and he was like, Hey, Will, you got a lawyer? Quincy, I'm broke. If I had a lawyer taking 5%, he'd owe me money right now. He was like, all right, and he turned to his assistant. He was like, get Will a lawyer. Quincy had been drinking. You yeah, know, it's probably obvious from the story, but he had been tasting. He, he had wet his beak a little bit that night. Yeah, So the lawyers go out in the limo and they're drawing up the first deal for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Quincy is like popping up at the window, no paralysis, do analysis. No paralysis, do analysis! <laughs> like, how did he make Thriller like this? So we got the lawyers draw up something. Ken Hertz looked it over for me, Brandon Tartikoff, and we took a picture and we signed the, the, the basic deal for the Fresh Prince, and three months later, we were shooting the pilot, and that's the story of how I became the Prince of Bel-Air. So the moral of the story is, Always say yes. And I guess, listen to your girlfriend.
0: (laughs) And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's an entrepreneur's story right there. And that's what we do here. I mean, the arts show business, the business part. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org, type in Sly Stallone, because you hear the same story from Stallone at that key moment in his life when he had this script. And if you remember, Stallone kept, he, well, they wanted to buy the script from him, and they kept saying 50000 then 100, 000, then 100000 then 200000 And Stallone's like, man, that was more money than I was ever going to see in my whole life. But remember what he said. He said, my goodness, if that's a big hit and I'm not in it, I'm going to jump off a bridge. And so he just said, no, I'm not selling it. i got to be oh, in the movie. And that business decision he made changed his life. The decision Will Smith made changed his. And thank goodness he had a great advocate, a great businessman. Quincy Jones wasn't just a musician, folks. And Benny Medina, well, he's the real thing. And look up his name. What a story there. We should do that one, too. This is Lee Habib, Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories.
4: Here it is, a groove slightly transformed. Just a bit of a break from the norm. Just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves?
11: Romance. Mm
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show. And that's family, love, faith, music, movies, food, and yes, we talk a lot about work and a lot about education, because that's a big part of our lives. And we hear so often from young people and parents alike about this problem called education. And does everyone need to go to college? And in this 21st century, there are so many good jobs chasing not nearly enough qualified applicants and what to do about it, what to do about it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing what we do. Sometimes we're watching stuff on TV, so you don't have to. And there was a woman, Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM, and she was talking at this governor's conference. And all the governors of the country are there, and they're there to talk about this problem. Their schools, all the money we're spending as taxpayers in our respective states and as a federal government, and what are we doing to solve this problem, this skills problem in this country, and should every kid go to college? By the way, Ginny Rometty is the CEO of IBM, but no one would have ever thought this woman was going to be such a thing because, well, at the age of 15, her father, well, he just got out of Dodge and left her mom to raise four kids without the help of another provider. But Jenny went to Northwestern, rose up IBM, and became again this CEO. And here she is, defining the problem to this audience, again, of governors of all 50 states.
11: This is not a world where everybody has to be a data scientist. If we paint a vision that the only people with good jobs are everyone with a four-year college degree or a PhD. I think that, cre- that is not what this world can do. It is going to create a division that is even larger in this country between the haves and the have-nots. You cannot, there must be good paying jobs and I think it's quite possible. We played around with a term called new collar which said we can see it. It's not a four-year degree. Think of it as with less than a four-year degree, maybe you want to call it a six-year high school, you can get a very good, productive job in the data economy in many, many different fields. So we set out on this. It's now been six years that we started down this path. Coined it new collar, so not blue collar, not white collar. Tried to have no stereotype that would be a negative stereotype with this.
0: But the problem for students and companies alike is that very few schools or other institutions are preparing young people for these new collar jobs. So IBM decided to take action with their own Pathways in Technology program to reinvent education. It is a public-private partnership that spans grades nine to 14, combining high school, college,
11: and a career. We will now be up to 120. Texas is going to do another 20, seven states. Uh, As as the full pipeline of every grade is full, we'll be at more than 60,000 kids. And the idea is 120 schools, a very simple formula. And I already know it's working because I've hired a bunch of them already. They're coming out the other end. I've been at it now long enough, so i got proof. Um, The idea is simple. Take a four-year high school with a joint community college. You offer the kids the chance to get their high school degree and their associate degree at the same time. We as industry, public-private partnership, offer mentorship, electronic mentorship for the kids, and a chance at a job. Now, the curriculum, it is not like a trade school. These kids are getting a good, broad education. But it is more practical education that can be hired. And so the kids now are graduating and making double the median income uh whether it's not just cybersecurity jobs it's not just direct it jobs it's digital designers and we've got oh boy now it's up to 400 other companies across the country helping us with taking on and giving the kids the mentorships and the internships they even get internships during paid internships no less uh during this and so to me that's one way for the youth i think it's a public private partnership i need the employees Everybody I know needs the employees. I mean, the gap of jobs in this country is still millions. I just look at cybersecurity, it's going to be millions again to go forward. And even with now the Jobs Act, we can bring in back all the jobs. We don't have to train people. So to me, this is a really big deal. And when you look at the um, graduation rates out of community college, we're 400 times better than the average community college graduation rate. 85% of the kids are either graduating with their associate degree or going on to college. We started with the most underserved kids. 70% qualify for free lunch or lunch assistance, if if that's maybe kind of a a guide for underserved, and they're coming out now. So it's really something that I am so, uh, you can tell I hope, so passionate about, That And I do believe it's a responsibility. I mean, we create this. It's our responsibility to work, public-private partnership. And there is no one better to sponsor it. There is no one who else can other than a governor.
0: And by the way, that's the sound of big, bad business, folks. Reaching out, speaking out, putting their capital on the line and saying, please help us, educators, families, America. We want to fill these jobs. And we're here to help with the training with, as she said before, electronic mentorship. We can pipe in a lot of learning from people who are on the job who are willing to give some of their time to teach. It's like apprenticeship via the Internet. We know this is possible, right? Well, I never saw a set of governors so excited to talk at one of these governors' conferences because this was real-life solutions without a burden on the taxpayers, folks. Here's Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado.
12: When one of the IBM executives came and pitched me on P-TECH, which was in 2012 in Pathways of Technologies, we call it Tech.
11: It's P-tech, yep.
12: Yeah. Um But anyway, I love that IBM gave this guy leeway on IBM time to go out and go out to other states. First, they did in New York, and then showed it could work, and then said, "All right, here's we'll we'll set up for you. You guys are going to, have to engage it." So we have it in three three school districts now, and the thing that's amazing. So it's in one of our school districts is in St. Raymond Valley School Districts, and uh, they're up there, they're in their second year there. They're our third school district, but they have a little over 100 kids. 70% come from low, impact, low income Hispanic households. Uh, almost everyone will be the first generation, first in their generation to go to college. So that ability to provide technology pathways to everybody is really astounding. I just want to make sure that you got
11: recognized for uh, for that leadership. Well, thank you for your leadership on it, too. So, seriously.
0: 100 kids' lives changed forever. And again, 70% of those kids in that one school district in Colorado, 70% low-income households. Next up, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland.
13: We started this in Baltimore City. We found out what you were doing from New York. And uh, we said, we've got to get this in our state. And we took on, we started with two schools two of the most challenged schools in Baltimore City and teamed up with Baltimore City Community College. I was just there a couple of days ago visiting with the teachers and with the kids and the students and I can tell you we're trying to expand this all over the state. Number one, we're the cyber capital of America. We house NSA, and NIST and the Cyber Center of Excellence. We have 17 universities that are cyber uh, related, 12,000 IT companies Uh, and so we have a huge need for people with technical skills and we're doing that all over at every level. That's not just what this is about, getting kids into uh, learning technology. To see the faces of these kids who are literally, their parents are crying because of the opportunity. They're kids that might not have ever had any opportunity or any hope for a better future. That have mentors and paid summer internships, and they're learning and they're excited and they see a future because of this, and they're first in line for jobs at IBM or one of the other companies that sponsor. It's just an incredible program. So I know six of my colleagues are already doing it. Um, I just want to thank IBM for the innovation and encourage all of you to uh, take a serious look. It's a wonderful program.
11: Thank you. It's a, it's a funny thing, you know, the uh, all of the. Uh, Education, and, because part of what we also do, the kids learn, you know, how do you eat a business meal? What's the appropriate way to dress? How do you go to? I mean, there are many things you teach beyond just the content, as you saw, right? But boy, do those! I've never met a parent that didn't want a better life for their child, right? And never, no, it doesn't matter.
0: Yep, so true. And finally, Jenny suggested that we seriously consider how schooling fits into our lives. Is it really something that we can do in one
11: big chunk? I think you need to rethink the education model. We are now going to be in a lifelong learning model. That is a different world because this won't be the last time. And so where we used to think you could finish your grade 12, maybe go on through university, you're done and the rest takes care of itself. I don't know. To me, I've given a lot of thought about does this mean a new new sort of continuous training model that gets put in does education really change in every state somebody's going to have to start to tackle that it's not that i'm looking for incentives that's i don't need them in in a company of our size but the small medium businesses this constant retraining that's going to go on i think is going to be a fact of life we're going to focus on
0: And it is. And, you know, you're thinking about $100,000 between the ages of 18 and 22. Well, maybe that needs to go into an education savings account for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life. What was really beautiful about this event, folks, is you were hearing from Republican governors, Democrat governors. They weren't fighting. They weren't screaming. They weren't yelling at each other. By the way, that's why it's not on the news. But it's important to the families listening, and that's why we bring it to you. Good news out there. Pathways in technology. If it's not in your school district, ask your superintendent why and push and push. There's companies out there waiting to help. Jenny Rometty's story. Let's face it, the American workers' story in the 21st century and all of our family's story. Here on Our American Stories.
5: Boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries
2: the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still
5: remains.
0: This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. And today, Faith brings us the story of Ed Lattimore. A heavyweight boxer that's worked very hard to get where he is today. Ed recently went back to school after dropping out in his early 20s, but is now pursuing a physics degree. Ed also has served in the National Guard and enjoys writing. He has a handful of self-published books, including one titled, Not Caring What Anyone Thinks is a Superpower. Here's Ed's story.
14: So, there, there there are two stories in my mind. It's so funny. I just thought of the first one. The second one is one I always tell. You know, much to my mother's dismay, whether she listens to this or not, I don't care. I remember when I was, um, I was like five, four or five, and I already had a key to come home and let myself in, and I was over there be able to cook dinner and take care of myself, because one of the things about growing up in this environment, I mean, you have to be really self-sufficient, and for any other reason, and if you have any type of decent single parent... They're going to work a lot. And my mom did do that too. You know, we, we didn't want for very much. There were, there were hard times financially, obviously, but we had most of the things we needed. And that was because my mom would work, right? So so that's one story I think about is how I was already able, you know, most kids don't get, are, are worried about babysitters. I mean, maybe that's a thing about the middle class, but we're just, you know, we got to get home and eat. You know, my mom works till 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night, maybe later sometimes. So I was always taking care of myself in that respect. On the other end, I think about, and it's a very clear time in my life, when I was 11, My mom was out there, you know, just being a fool, you know, sometimes, you know, despite our best attempts, there are parts of us that we cannot escape. And my mom has quite a few of those parts. So I remember one time at 11, she she was fighting with some woman in the street and the end result was that, you know, she gets arrested. But I remember, I remember holding her back, saying, this is stupid. And I'm 11 at this point. I'm like, this is stupid. If you go and do this, nothing good is going to come of this. And she's all drunk and angry and like, let me go. Let me go find out. And I had to let her go, right? Because this time my mom was bigger than me. Uh, I was a you know, little kid at 11. And, and I remember from that point on, I always say, I always tell her this, and she gets mad when I tell her story, but it's, it's the truth. I remember at that point on, that's when it hit me. I was like, I'm in this thing alone. I can't count on, because I mean, my father was around, but he wasn't really around. I don't know if he was, like, not interested in young kids or whatever, or maybe he was just going to... Let the ghetto sort us of out. Maybe we survive. You know, like like in a uh, three hundred where they throw the kid into the woods and he comes back. And man, I don't know if like that was his plan or whatever. But uh, it was pretty much in that regard. The day to day life. That's when it hit me. I was like, I'm in this thing alone, and I got to really figure it out because I have surpassed the people who are supposed to be, you know, tasked with my upbringing. I've surpassed them in maturity and capability.
10: Boxing, writing, physics electrical engineering, radio technician specialist, and a chess player. One could say that Edward Lattimore is almost your modern-day Renaissance man. But all his hard work and accomplishments did not happen overnight. Ed did not come from the most opportune of backgrounds.
14: Well, I've grown up, so I'm from, I grew up in, in a public housing project. Uh, people from familiar with that is the projects or, or the ghetto. So, so I grew up there and that the place is as bad as, is, is, you know, you can imagine what a lot of crime and poverty and violence in particular. And, and I think one of the things, you know, cause I could have turned out a lot worse, but, but what made my situation relatively unique is that my father was in the picture growing up like my dad he didn't live with us he lived in philadelphia but i had i never you know i I never thought my dad wasn't around or wasn't available to speak to and i could talk to him he'd come and visit and everything and i really think that helped in terms of a a role model but for the most part i mean we're talking a a relatively small but, but very influential part of my childhood
10: Due to his parental situation, he had a lot of self-realizations early on in life.
14: I give my mom, it's very extreme, my my relationship with my mom. On the one hand, I really credit some of the fundamental habits I have for acquisition of knowledge and my respect for books. And and the manners I just generally carry, even before I entered the military, the manners I generally carry, I, I give my mom a lot of that credit. I also sometimes when I think about it, I get really angry, or I used to. Now I don't. I haven't had that these issues in almost ten years, now maybe longer. I used to get really angry thinking about like, why, why would my mom have me? And know knowing this circumstance, like there was no foresight in that regard. So I consider myself doubly fortunate that I was able to to go. Okay, I want to go to this school because, like, you know, my sister went to a very different school and she's in a very different place. And I really believe part of that is because she didn't expose herself to different things. But my mom didn't force her to do that, just like she didn't force me. However, she did make a slight suggestion. I thought on that suggestion, looked around at some of the influences I had, and I said, okay, this is the right thing for me to do. Which, looking back at it, I mean, I think that's relatively remarkable for for a 13-year-old kid to recognize this place is not going to help me do any better in my life and I need to be exposed to something different.
10: Now, taking care of yourself takes a lot of energy. No matter what age. But especially when you're just a young kid.
14: Thinking back on it, I remember being tired all the time, you know, <laughs> not, not very similar, not dissimilar to how things are going right now, but I was tired because, because, okay, I mean, for whatever reason, and, and we can think a higher power or, or some genetic disposition, I've always been forward thinking. And I knew I was like, okay, so I need to work to, to, to make sure I have the ability to experience life. So I, I had a, a few part-time jobs, but I was like, okay, I can, I'm I'm not bad at sports, I should play a sport because that's going to get me to maybe some colleges to look at me and keep me out of trouble and keep me active, and I'm I'm studying to them in the hardest classes I can be in. So that, I remember being really tired in in high school. Prior to that, I remember, it's hard, it's hard for me to think, oh, okay, man, like every single day sucked, like there are some things I remember being really Unhappy about and really uncomfortable about, but for the most part, you had. And this is something uh, I don't, you know, it's funny I don't think about until I think about it. You have a frame of reference, and without a frame of, you know, your frame of reference lets you know what a thing is. For me, until I got to high school, I didn't even understand. Like I don't, I, I was so surrounded by things related to the hood. Like I didn't even know what a mortgage was, or that you paid your own utilities because when you live in a public housing. You know there's no such thing as utilities like just basic things that people take for granted i did not even realize you know were things and i bring that up to say that while i know in retrospect life was not as uh, conducive to development as it could be i don't remember feeling stunted at that point now now in high school that's when it really became a little more clear like i would be in class with these kids and, and I'm, a, I'm a relatively intelligent guy uh, but but i'm sitting here in class going man if only you didn't ha- if i didn't if only i didn't have to to feel exhausted i'd be able to do better you know but 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 i also learned really only well, wrong you don't make excuses for anything at all you just go and do it because no one cares how you think how you feel all it's gonna matter at the end of the day is what do you do you know and i and I, I'm really happy. I don't know where that came from either. Maybe I, I, mean, I feel like my mom maybe instilled that in me somehow, some way. But I never ever made excuses for any of the, any, of my, any, any, excuses for my performance because of where I was from or what I was dealing with or whether I had an hour bus ride either way to school or I was waking up at four o'clock just to get there and to go, you know, work out in the morning with the rest of the kids who were, you know, literally around the corner. I had a plan to drop them off, things like that.
0: And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this unique voice. And boy, did he have excuses—easy ones. Didn't lean on him, though. Ed Lattimore's story. Here on our American stories. And we've been listening to Ed Lattimore's story. He grew up in the projects, realized that in high school, he didn't want to stay there. But it was a lot harder for him than other kids. We pick up with Ed talking about his high school experience.
14: Uh, in the city of Pittsburgh, you can go to another high school based on your interests and or abilities. So I didn't have, so I went to the, the school assigned for where I grew up and the people around me of a similar socioeconomic background from you know, kindergarten to like eighth grade. In the ninth grade, you know, whether it was, you know, foresight on my part or my mom just recognizing who and what I could become, you know, I got to go to a school across town with a very different group of people and a very different set of classes. And all of my good friends are from that era in my life, but is but from Prior to that, oh no, I didn't. I didn't have any friends really, and hang out with kids. And when I, once I realized, you know, kind of, it wasn't. There was nothing out there for me. I spent a lot of time playing video games and, and reading books. Pre so pre fourteen, really no one. Post fourteen, all of my close god friends today. Well, most of them I'll say uh, I met in that era, and and it really, you know, their families really embraced me, and I'm so grateful for that. That they didn't just see me as some kid from across town that was that was friends with their son or whatever. I mean, these people, I mean, one of the families saved my life, another one, they're responsible. They gave me a place to stay when I ultimately I, I got, you know, thrown out uh, from my home. You know, one family took care of me when I needed some extra money to, to take some placement exams. I mean, so, so the families of my friends when I turned 14, I mean, they really... They're really an important part of who I am. I mean, and, and you continue to develop and grow, but I've always, always thought highly of, of all of them and I have the most respect and love.
10: He mentioned one of his friends saving his life.
14: That, that story, um, I actually, I'm, I'm allergic to tree nuts and, and, the family, I just happened to eat some nuts there, and then when I woke up and came to, they're the ones who still, they were in the hospital with me the whole time. I, like, passed. I woke up in the hospital. I'm like, oh, it's, you know, name redacted. Uh, family, they're just hanging out. It was like great, great, great. So, so that's you know that's just one story. I mean, they didn't have to do it; they could have just dropped me off at the hospital and my mom come, but she couldn't get there, and they they stayed and and stayed really close. And and you know the, these experiences too, I like to highlight just to, to talk about because I remember I remember when my my mom used to have these these just outdated um, and effectively racist ideas. And I was like, "Look, man, I'm at school with like white kids. You have to get over this." And it, it went back and forth. And then when that happened, you know, her whole demeanor changed. She's got one of two choices: she can she can continue to be a fool, and I, and I made it pretty clear. And I think that's part of the way I not not part of that is a large reason why I'm so emotionally non-reactive to many things. So she sees how I go out and how I have these good friends and how these friends look at me like a like a family member, and her whole and her mindset has to change it, so so it's change and embrace as opposed to I'm going to continue with my whole way of thinking and just kind of exile you and i'm really I, I I hadn't thought about that that experience until just talking to you right now. that was a really really powerful time. really, really good thing.
10: It is amazing to hear his mom's change of heart. A little kindness can go a long way. After graduating from high school, there were still a lot of learned issues that Ed had to work through.
14: The big thing for me coming out of high school at that point in my life is I didn't realize how emotionally unprepared and, and, and just fundamentally just Wrecked, I was as a person, and I think most kids. I mean, I don't think they were as bad as me, but I think most kids are most kids probably have no idea what they really want to do with their life at 18. And I'm no, I was no different in many ways. Worse, you know, I went to college, and what was more appealing to me was chasing girls and drinking and 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 staying out and indulging on that side of the college life. So, so predictably. My academics suffered. They suffered to the point where I got put on academic probation for the second semester. And in the third semester I went back, I just dropped out. I just left. I left because I had started seeing this girl back home. That's what I told myself. But the reality is I wasn't happy. I didn't see any point in going there. I had stopped playing football. I just really lost interest in in the whole university experience and wanted to be back home and and close to what I knew. Because that's what it was. It was about getting back to something familiar that I knew. What I take from it, I always tell this to people, you can change your life at any time. You just got to be willing to leave behind who you were. And that is effectively what I did. I mean, I stopped drinking. I thought my drinking was causing a big, big problem. I, I stopped that entirely, which in turn changed my entire socialization structure for the better. And I got with a really solid, wonderful person and her influence on me and that has shaped me and helped me develop again into the type of person I want to be I started focusing on my writing and really getting into that along with you know school and science you know sometimes I'm exhausted but that's helped me develop and continue to grow because yeah because I I, I remember I remember thinking very clear I was just like if you continue on this path You're gonna always said I'm gonna turn 33 regardless. That was always the number in my mind. I don't know why I chose that. I said I'm gonna turn 33 regardless. Am I gonna turn 33 with the ability, you know, to make to make 90 or 100k a year? Am I gonna turn 33 mad that I gotta show up to a to an eight-hour shift at T-Mobile? And and every time I thought about that, I I would just go, you know what, you gotta do. You gotta make changes. So I mean, I really just. Changed so much stuff. Changed. It was really abrupt. I mean, I think it really is catching up to me. Not catching up, but sometimes I sit and think and realize when, when I when I look at what all the things I don't do anymore that I used to do, and all the new fun habits I have of how different things are. But if I if I didn't have the courage to just kind of look and go, okay, the future's coming. I always tell my mom this: the future's coming, uh, whether you're prepared for it or not. But the cool thing about it being the future is you get to prepare for it. If you don't know yourself, uh, it really doesn't matter what's what what abilities you have or what opportunities come your way, because I, I'm a big believer in the in the cliche: a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and and everyone's got a weak link. But the trick is, do you know your weak links? And if you know them, do you know how to avoid them? For me, my weak link is fixation and I I never really understood that until my girl said something about it one day with, with the way I drink coffee and imagine that condimentality kind of with alcohol you know and I won't have coffee for a while but the point is you know coffee is a lot different than alcohol and how it affects your body and your decisions so knowing that I said the first thing I have to do the very first and it wasn't the first thing it should have been the first thing. The second thing I did when I got back from AIT, I was like, "Nope, I'm done."
10: Having a personality that is all or nothing can be detrimental, but for Ed, he has learned to use that focus for his benefit.
14: I was talking to a good friend of mine about this very same point. He posts on Twitter. He says, "Giving up drinking for the week. Every, every you know, every other every other week, every other month, it's some amount of time giving up drinking." To which I said to him, "I was like." Well, man, well, why though? Like, either, either go all in or stay, either go into the deep end or stay out of the pool entirely, right? To which he responds, so funny, he goes, that's silly. That'd be like having coffee for every meal. To which I responded, have you seen how I drink coffee? And that's when I realized I don't know how to relate to the concept of moderation with people.
10: We have to learn to navigate the thing that will make us great or the thing that will make us fail. And that's when we will be most likely to succeed.
14: One of the the biggest search term that directs people to my site, not drinking. (laughs) Because of the articles I've wrote about my experiences, not drinking and becoming sober in that journey. And. Imagine how selfish it would be of me to have not wrote that experience down. I get messages. I still get messages where people go, I've not drank for one year. I've not drank for six months. I tried sobriety out because of you, because of you, because of what you wrote. Not because of something I spoke or not because uh, someone put me on a billboard, no, because of my words. And I keep working on my writing. You know, a lot of people don't, for whatever reason, it is so depressing that people who would be great writers and great artists and have a great story to connect with people, do not. I tell everyone they should start a blog because I could say the exact same thing and have the exact same message. And they could hear that exact same message from 1,000 other people, a 1,000 different ways. And it's not until something about your background or your story or who you're from or or where you're from or who you are, they read it, that that 1,000, the first time they read it and go, you know what? I really get it. I'm going to make that change. You know, because I'm sure anyone who stopped drinking because of my articles had thought about it before. I'm sure I didn't come in and just magically persuade them. But something about who I am and how I wrote made them... Go about it and made them finally try it and they got a benefit of it. And for, you know, that's all you can do.
10: As I said before, Ed is definitely an outlier. But it's always inspiring to hear stories of those who have made the most of their circumstances.
0: And thanks as always, Faith. And what a great story. And thank you, Ed Lattimore. The future's coming whether you prepare for it or not. And it's so well said, and what a voice, and we want to hear more from him, and we will hear more from him. Ed Lattimore's story, and so many young people's story, living in such circumstances around this country, here on Our American Stories.